Uh, Go ahead and open your Bibles to the passage that Annie read or actually recited for us. It's from Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. That's the text that we're going to study this morning. And we're taking a break from our Acts series to dive into Advent. But we, as we thought about it, we said, you know what? Plan A is still a great title for this Advent series, not just because Advent starts with A. You know, that was a happy coincidence. <laughs> um, not just because Advent means arrival, and arrival starts with A. That was also a happy coincidence. But plan A for the world is Jesus. And so we've been talking about plan A is, you know, the church. Well, the only reason that that's true is the church is the body of Jesus. The church is the body of Christ. So think about it this way. There are actually two Advents or arrivals of Jesus that the scripture talks about. There's one that we look back to 2,000 years ago, the baby born in a manger, and, you know, his, his life and everything that that included, and, you know, right around the, the turn of the millennium there. Then there is the one that we look forward to yet to come, the second coming of Jesus. We live in between the two advents. How now shall we live as the body of the one who came in our day and age? That's what Acts is about. So we take a break from that to talk about Jesus' arrival as God's plan A. Isaiah chapter 9 is actually my very favorite Christmas passage. And I want to read not just the the verse or two that the Toy family read, but I want to focus on seven verses, Acts 9, 1 through 7. And I'm going to explain as we go through why I think we need this text so much. In fact, I come back to this text every single year. This is how I start my Advent celebration is by spending some time in Isaiah chapter 9, 1 to 7. And I think the reason I keep coming back to it is, I bless you, I realize that uh, this season, like this Christmas season, is going to drive us crazy if we don't stay grounded. Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, you come in, we see the lights, like, oh, this is, you know, most wonderful time of the year, and that's all great and good, and I love all that stuff, and I love the Yule time cheer and the Christmas carols, and I, I mean, I get into all that kind of things. I mean, there's no, no Grinch bone in my body, but I will say this. I looked at my calendar a few nights ago. My wife and I sat down, and we, we counted up the number of appointments and dinners and Christmas parties and violin recitals that we have, we've got 16 things on our calendar between now and Christmas that aren't normally there. You know, you know what I mean? This is not a normal season. You turn on the TV or you browse the internet, you're just bombarded by some messaging that honestly is not always healthy for your soul. And I'm not just talking about the secularized version of Christmas and how they've lost track that it really should be about Jesus. That, that's a part of it. But there's some other subtle things, messages going on in the craziness of this season. And so what I believe is that for the good of our own souls, we need to celebrate Advent the way it was intended to be celebrated. We need to dig in in this season and not just be happy and merry about Christmas, but actually look at some texts from the Word of God some passages from the Word of God and say, how would this season actually fulfill the, 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 the purpose that it was given? Uh, this season in the church calendar was provided for the nourishment of our spiritual souls. And so many of us, you'll get to the end of it and you'll be so worn out. It's just like, glad I made it through another Christmas. <laughs> That's not what Advent was intended to be. So how do we keep it as a nourishing thing for us spiritually rather than something that would diminish our souls and spirits over these next three or four weeks. So consider this message from Isaiah 9, a spiritual survival guide 
for the Christmas season. I want to walk through these seven verses, verse by verse, as we like to do um, expositionally. Um, But I first want to give you some context for it. And then on the back end, I've got four lessons to how to keep keep you sane in Christmas season that come from Isaiah chapter 9. And and I tried to trim it down to three because that's what good pastors do, but I couldn't do it. So you got to have four. So I'm going to talk fast. Now, here's the context. Isaiah wrote or spoke, etc., 700 years prior to the birth of Christ. You got to remember that. The second thing you have to remember is Isaiah was a prophet in a terrible time in Israel's history. And it was, it was essentially like the lowest of the low. And, and here's the situation. You had uh, the nation of Israel was broken into two parts at this point in time. There was Israel in the north, Judah in the south. The Assyrian army had swept in right at the time of Isaiah. So about 700, actually 722 uh, BC and had conquered the northern kingdom. They were gone So while Isaiah is writing this, he's down in Jerusalem. The northern kingdom had just been wiped out. The southern kingdom's not that far behind. You know, just 150 years later, Babylon is going to conquer the southern kingdom. But that 150 years were some of the hardest, worst years in Judah's history. So Isaiah is writing this prophecy from a place of things are terrible and they're only going to get worse. But then, every now and then, in this grand, lengthy book we know as the book of Isaiah, you see these sparks of beauty, this future promise of something that's on the way, of something that's to come. And so Isaiah is both one of the most heavy books of the Old Testament because of the historical situation and God's judgment that is rightly coming down on the nation of Israel for worshiping other gods and and, and making sacrifices to all kinds of despicable practices. This is the consequence and the weight of stepping away from that covenant with God. And yet, even in the midst of their rebellion, there are these messages of hope of a future king who will come, of this Messiah that will come. Some beautiful passages, and this morning we find ourselves in one of those. With that as context, let's jump in. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. You, know, you, you hear this already. We're in anguish now, but something different is going to come, right? In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan. Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, let's pause there for just a minute. Uh, Your brain may go to a couple questions. One is, what is Zebulun and and Naphtali? Well, those are tribes in the north. So this is part of that northern kingdom of Israel that had already been conquered. And so what Isaiah was saying is, there's all this gloom, there's all this anguish, particularly in those places. They've borne the brunt of God's judgment during this time. But there shall come a day that even that region will be made glorious. Don't miss the fact, we've been in Mark most of this last year, Um, what region did most of Jesus' ministry take place? Do you remember? Anybody shout it out? Would he spend most of his ministry time in Jerusalem or or up north in the Galilee region? I gave you the answer, okay. Yeah, in the Galilee region, right? All those miracles we talked about around the, the lake, or the sea, sometimes you call it the Sea of Galilee. Um, guys, for about two and a half years, Jesus was walking in the very places that were desolated by the Assyrian army. And according to Isaiah's prophecy, that area is going to be made glorious. Now, 
think about this. The region that had borne the brunt of God's judgment is the very region that God chooses to send Messiah to first, you see, to proclaim good news and, and, and fullness of life. And so Jesus in his miracles, what is he doing? Like he's multiplying bread because there was a famine. He's, he's setting people free of the captivity of demon possession, you know, to sort of represent the fulfillment of the prophecy that people will be set free from prisoner. He's Um, healing people of disease. You see, he's picturing a a land that's flourishing as it will be completely in the new heavens and the new earth. He is sort of giving a preview of that through his ministry as he walks around, guess where? Zebulun, Naphtali, right around Galilee, this very area. So this is a prophetic vision Isaiah has had of the ministry of Jesus in his arrival. And you'll see that as the text continues on. Let's look at verse two. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. What is this light that Isaiah is um, speaking of? Well, it's not an it, it's a who. The light is a person. The gospel writer John describes Jesus as the light of the world. And all throughout John's gospel, he uses this imagery of the darkness and the light. I think John was, had Isaiah in mind. The people who've been in darkness, a light is going to come to you if you can just wait, if you can hold on. You will see a light. That's what verse 2 is about. Verse 3, you, now he's shifting the point of view here as he's writing to God. He's talking to God, you. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So now he's talking about the emotions that are going to come when Messiah comes. It's going to be gladness. Why will there be gladness? Not just because of the spiritual you know, arrival of Messiah, but for the tangible things that Messiah will bring. The gladness of harvest. This is a time in Israel's history when Isaiah was writing where it was not a land flowing with milk and honey. It was that. And then the people had stepped out of covenant relationship with God and now their harvests weren't good. They were starving, probably literally. In fact, the the Assyrians and later on the Babylonians would just cut off all their food and water sources and essentially starve them to death. That is what was happening militarily. And then even physically in the earth, just the harvests weren't as plenty. One of the reasons that they weren't is they'd not obeyed God to give the land a year of rest as they were supposed to do from time to time. They'd just been exploiting the land and God says it doesn't work that way. And so now I imagine extended families and, and communities getting together to kind of like take like one turnip or, or, or leek and, you know, cut it up and divide it up just to have something to eat. And so Isaiah is saying there will be a bountiful harvest that will bring joy. Now, not only will there be a harvest, but there's going to be something else wonderful as well. Look at verse 4. You shall break the yoke of their burden. He's talking about being slaves. He'll break that yoke and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Now, this is a prophetic Uh, word that there will be a time when the prisoners will be set free. And from the perspective of Jerusalem, they technically were not yet prisoners, but they would be soon when Babylon comes and exiles them away. Isaiah is actually seeing that, and he's looking beyond that, and he's saying the prisoners will be set free. How is that going to happen? Messiah. There's going to be 
complete and wonderful harvest and flourishing of food, there's also going to be freedom. And I, I think there's a reference even to spiritual freedom as well that's going to come in Messiah. I think all that's sort of packed in here. Let's keep going in the text. Verse 5, one of my favorite verses. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Merry Christmas. <laughs> what in the world is this talking about? There is a theme in Isaiah that there'll be a day when there'll be no more warfare. There'll be no more bloodshed. The instruments of battle will be turned into instruments of peace rather than war. In Isaiah 2, he actually says there'll be a time when all the swords will be turned into plowshares. In other words, it's going to take the instruments of war and make them instrument of harvest. Here he's talking about the, the boots and the bloody cloaks from the warfare. They're going to be useless, so they're all going to be burned, and that fire is going to give us warmth, and that fire is going to give us light. You see, he's prophesying a day when there'll be no more need for war. Are we there yet? We're not. We're not yet there. In fact, this introduces a tension that we're seeing already in this chapter of Isaiah that some of these prophecies that he's speaking of have come true already and some of them haven't. Let's uh, go on to verse 6, but before I do, I'll summarize the first five verses by saying this. Isaiah is promising incredible things for a people that are right now in deep darkness and sadness. He's promising them freedom. He's promising them flourishing. He's promising them harvest, food, He's promising them peace. No more war. How are all these promises going to come true? What is going to bring about this change? It must be something spectacular and world-changing. Verse 6. For, or because, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Pause right there for a minute. Did you catch the irony? You know, we know the Christmas story so well that it, it, lo it loses its shock value. Like, how is a baby going to make all the boots of the booted warriors burn? You know, how is a baby going to do all these things? Well, the government will rest on his shoulders. That's a start. That, that's an image that's probably referring to that purple royal robe that will rest on a king's shoulders. Now, I mentioned to you there's a tension between some things that have already come and some things that haven't. You see that already in, in, in verse 6, don't you? Because a child will be born, that's first advent. The government will rest on his shoulders. That hasn't happened yet in full, like Isaiah's prophesying. That's second advent. So you see, from Isaiah's perspective, I don't know that God made it clear that there were going to be two arrivals. He just knew that, that Jesus was coming. There's a king coming, you see. And so our perspective, we're like, Advent 1 here, Advent 2 here. It's easy to distinguish. From Isaiah's perspective, they're both future tense for him. And, and usually prophecy just kind of speaks about the coming of Jesus and doesn't necessarily differentiate between what's going to be the first coming and the second coming. It kind of all wraps it up together. And that's what Isaiah is doing here. Now let's look at the second half of verse 6. Uh, here's... You know, part of the beautiful um, uh, words that many of you already know and have heard from many Christmases in your life. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. In ancient 
culture, the names signified the characteristics of the person. So what is this signifying about the Messiah who would come and, from our perspective, has already come once? Well, he is Wonderful Counselor. Let's unpack each of these names. Wonderful Counselor. Uh, don't think about like the therapist on the couch, all right? That's not a Wonderful Counselor. Uh, in Hebrew, the word wonderful could better be translated supernatural. Counselor is the idea of a very wise man or a, a, sometimes in the context of a military strategist or an advisor to the king. So he's going to have wisdom. He's going to know what to do. And not just earthly wisdom, supernatural wisdom. That's what that wonderful word actually means. Supernatural wisdom. He's a wonderful counselor. And I think the image in the people's minds would have gone to Solomon, right? Solomon ruled over the apex, the golden age of Israel's history. Solomon was known for his wisdom. And Isaiah is saying, he's not just going to have the wisdom of Solomon. That was earthly wisdom. He's going to have supernatural or other earthly wisdom. Wonderful counselor. That's what that title means. Let's keep going to the next title. Mighty God. It's exactly what it sounds like. This Savior King will be deity. And so we get into the tension of the incarnation that the baby that was fully human was also fully God. How can God be that needy that he needs to, the, the care of his mother and he needs his diaper changed? Oh, what a beautiful combination of the reality of the two natures of Christ. You know, he is going to be a baby. He's also going to be called Mighty God because he is. The next title, Eternal Father. Now think about this. Isaiah is writing about Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. How is it that the second person, the Son of the Trinity, is going to be also Eternal Father? Well, first of all, it is a Trinity, so there's this mysterious union, three distinct persons, Father, Son, Spirit, but they're also one. They're united. It's, it's not sort of a, a triumvirate. It's a triune unity in the Godhead. But secondly, I think what Isaiah is going after here is the, the kind of ruler he'll be is going to be a fatherly ruler, a parental care he's going to give over his children, his people. So there's this idea, and it's, not, it's going to be eternal. The eternal fatherly love of God, he's going to embody the Savior will. That's eternal father. And then the last one, Prince of Peace. I think we've covered a little bit of this ground before. The word peace in Hebrew is Hebrew shalom, a pretty common Hebrew word. You've heard it. Um, I hope that, that you can, over time, understand that word in all of the depth and richness of its context it's a very important word. It's a very beautiful word. Peace does not do it justice. In English, peace just means the absence of conflict, right? So, man, we have peace in our marriage because we don't argue. Or we have peace in our country because we're not at war, you know? These kinds of ways we use peace. In Hebrew, shalom meant that, but so much more. It wasn't just the absence of something. It was the presence of something. It was the presence of wholeness, completeness. Everything rightly related. Think about a tapestry that's, that's stitched together according to the artistic design and every thread is rightly related to the thread near it and the thread that's far away from it. So shalom is creation as was intended to be. Shalom is the Garden of Eden prior to 
the fall in Genesis 3. Shalom is the new earth in Revelation 21-22. Everything in between is brokenness, fractured creation because of sin. So this is the prince of wholeness, the prince of completeness. Prince, by the way, doesn't really just mean the son of a king. Prince in Hebrew means the administrator, almost like the governor. So Jesus is the prince of peace, but maybe a better way to say it is he's the administrator of wholeness. But that doesn't sound as good in the Christmas carols. So we say prince of peace. And I I like prince of peace too. But there's some depth and richness here in the Hebrew that I don't want you to miss. Now, Verse 7, let's move on. Verse 7 is going to paint a picture of what it will be like to be governed by the kind of ruler that is the wonderful counselor, almighty God, everlasting father, and the prince of peace. Let's take a look. Verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. If I were going to summarize this passage, I would simply say, the baby changes everything. When you really understand the passage, you see that it's actually about so much more than the historical context of Assyria and Israel and Babylon and Judah and the prophet Isaiah. There's a sense of that, but there's a broader sense of the curse that this earth is under will be turned around. The curse will be undone. There will be a victory. There will be a king that will come that will be a forever king. And we're sitting here between the two advents and we're like, well, yes and no so far. Already, not yet. One advent, I see some fulfillment in this passage, but there's much that is yet to come. So how do we live in between these two advents according to how God would call us to, particularly in a season set aside to celebrate Advent? Four thoughts, four lessons for you. Lesson number one. Keep your hope future-oriented. Keep your hope future-oriented. Uh, There is a sense, and this is the candle of hope this morning, right? There is a sense that hope is always future tense. Hope by nature is forward-facing. You don't hope in things that happened in the past. Things in the past might give you reason to hope, but it's always in the future. Your hope needs to always be future oriented. Um, If you count here in the English translation in the NASB how many uh, future tense verbs there are, there are eight future tense verbs. It's all about what's going to happen. Now, by the way, it's interesting. I had a a gentleman come up after the first service and say, you know, he was reading the NIV. I'm reading NASB. He said, in the NIV, some of you may be reading that. He says, the verb tenses are different. Why are the verb tenses different? The verb tenses are past tense. Well, there was this poetic idiom that the Hebrew poets and sometimes prophets would use where they would write about the future in the past tense to designate that it is as good as done. And so Isaiah is writing future tense, but he's technically in Hebrew using past tense verbs. There's actually some beauty about that. He's recognizing you can be so sure of these future promises that it's as if they've already happened. Now, the NASB does this 
somewhat of a favor and somewhat of a, of a harm to translate them in the future tense. I do think it's helpful for us to see that all this stuff from the perspective of Isaiah's original audience, none of it had happened. In fact, it would be 700 years before any of this began to come true. And here we sit 2,000 years after the first advent, still hoping, still waiting, still confidently expecting with Isaiah for these things to come true. Keep your hope future-oriented. Listen, Advent in our context is sort of like a word we don't necessarily use a lot more. I mentioned earlier it means arrival. There's actually two Advents in the historical context of church history. The season of Advent was about both Advents. In our modern age, we've really made it just about the Christmas event, the birth, the nativity event. It has always meant to keep our eye backwards on the first and forwards on the second. Why does that matter so much? Well, first of all, I need to say that our Christmas culture, and, and by that I don't just mean the secular culture, but even you know, some of the way we've Christianized the secular culture in this December month, uh, it, will, it will almost exclusively focus your attention on the present and on the past. It will almost never go to the future. Let me explain. Um, the, the consumeristic call is that you can be satisfied through the right cocktail of beautiful lights and house that's decorated right and, and the, the family gathering together from near and far and, you know, somebody went to Jared and, you know, someone's got a Lexus in their driveway. And, you know, it's like hope can be found now. Just get the right thing. Just buy the right thing. Just have the right combination of family members with arm in arm singing Silent Night together and your heart will melt in the spirit of Christmas. That's what you're going to hear a hundred times between now and the 25th. It's a lie. Nothing will be as it should be in wholeness. I'm not saying I, I don't hope you have a wonderful Christmas with your family. I really do. <laughs> but it will not fulfill your deepest desires. You will have kids that go crazy. You will have indigestion. <laughs> you will have remorse, some of you, when you look at your credit card statement at the end. You will have arguments in family, and I just bet that Cousin Eddie is going to show up. <laughs> now, what do we do in light of the fact that this promise of fulfillment through the present tense Christmas season is going to fail us? We keep our hope future tense. Our true hope for fullness is in the second arrival, the second advent. The first one points to it, you see. So we celebrate that in anticipation of the fullness that is yet to come. The other thing that the, the Christmas season will do out there is it will point your mind backward. And I don't mean just backward to the, the nativity scene. We should go backward to that. But you'll, it'll be pointed you backward to a sense of nostalgia. Like underlying uh, emotional pull in every Christmas special that you'll ever watch is nostalgia. If things would just be the way they used to be. And if I could just go back in time to that moment when I was 10 years old and I got the, the red wagon, you know, and, and life was so right and life was so good. And by the way, I, nothing wrong with nostalgia. There's a time and place for it. I, I get into the nostalgic, you know, I, I've loved Christmas my whole life and it's just part of, 
Part of, part of the reason I love it is the nostalgia, and I love a good Christmas movie with the best of them, but there is no promise of wholeness in the past tense, men and women. If you could go back to when you got the red wagon at 10 years old, you're going to remember things were not the way they should have been then either. Mom and dad were still fighting. Relationships were still erect. There was still poverty and brokenness all around, all right? So there's not wholeness and completeness in the present tense this Christmas, not in full, and it's not in looking back. It's only in looking forward. Now, our Christmas carols, if you pay attention, will help you with both the first advent looking back appropriately and the next advent looking ahead appropriately. Listen to the the third verse of Joy to the World, just as an example. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Has that happened yet? That's second advent. Like that's future tense language, right? And it's mixed in, it's mingled with other verses in Joy to the World that celebrate the birth. And if you start paying attention, you'll see, oh, the church has always until recently Seen Advent as both the first and the second. We need to keep more emphasis on the hope that is to come in order for Christmas of 2017 to be in the right perspective. Now, I've got to go one more place on this first lesson and I'll speed up on the next three, I promise. I want to say this. God in his grace has embedded in the very things that we love most about Christmas a foreshadowing of the great things we will experience on the new earth. The things you love most about this season, those of you that do love this season, and no, that's not all of us, the very things you love are actually appetizers to whet your appetite for what is yet to come. Let me just go through some lists together, and I want you to think about how we enjoy those in part now, but we will enjoy them in full then. People gathered together from near and far Family relationships and friendships that are brought back together and are close and rightly related. Our needs fully met through giving and receiving. Beautiful lights, beautiful song, music, plentiful food, laughter. Most importantly, the bride of Christ worshiping Christ together as we've been doing this morning, and we will each Sunday, including on Christmas Eve. You see how these things are just a taste for what heaven's gonna be like? Guys, if you love Christmas, you're gonna adore heaven, you see. All these things are whetting your appetite. Don't miss the fact, so then you can enjoy the Yuletide cheer, knowing that it's just pointing you forward and you can give worship to God even through these wonderful things in this season. All right, Uh, lesson number two, much more brief. Allow generosity to dethrone consumerism in your heart. You know, I mentioned this earlier. You are a generous body. And that just, it it fills me sometimes to tears when I hear these stories. And yet what I also know is even you, generous body of Christ, will be bombarded with messages relentlessly of consumerism. And I've already touched on this, so I won't... Spend much more time. Now, where do we, we, we see this text going to battle with consumerism? Where does it come from Isaiah chapter 9? Glance briefly at verse 6. A child will be born to us. A son will be given 
to us. Generosity is the heartbeat of Christmas. But it's not our generosity that's the heartbeat of Christmas. It's the generosity of the one who gave. And and if you trace this gift throughout the rest of Scripture and all throughout the New Testament, what you're going to find is Jesus was sent so that you may have life and have it to the full. And in receiving him, you actually have everything you need for life and godliness. You have it. So if you understand the gospel, if you understand the gift that was given that Isaiah was prophesying about, if you receive the gift, then you actually can begin to be generous yourself because you no longer have to cling on to anything else to have fullness, you see. And I'm not talking about heavenly fullness yet, but I'm talking about as close as we're able to get in these broken places. The redemption of the gospel working in our hearts opens our hands to be generous. And guess who we are imitating as we open our hands? The God who is generous to us. Um, you're going to see all kinds of messages throughout this. I, I brought one up here. I got this in the mail this week. Okay, this is Barnes & Noble. All right, I like Barnes & Noble. And I'm glad they're so honest about their messaging, but it kind of made me chuckle in light of the sermon. Right up here at the top, it says, "'Tis the season to get what you really want.'" <laughs> like that's Amazon's message, you know, that's the mall's message, that's everybody's message right now. It's like, get what you really want, you know, and for some of us, it's like, you know, get the gift that they really want because what you really want is for them to stop nagging, you know, <laughs> right? So get what you really want. We're going to be bombarded with things. It will drive you crazy and starve your soul if you don't make some intentional decisions to let generosity dethrone consumerism. Some of you don't think you're wrapped up in consumerism, but you can't help it because of where you live and when you live. And it's like, well, I give a lot. Well, yes, you do give. And the reality is you could do both. You you, you could have more under your tree and give more to the world because God's blessed you in that kind of way. But what would it look like in this Christmas season if you made a different decision? You said, you know what? I'm actually going to have less under my tree, literally, for the good of my own soul for the good of my kids' own souls, for the good of what God is doing by his spirit in helping me realize that my hope is future-oriented, not present-oriented, you see. So one and two kind of go together. Lessons one and two go together. Allow generosity to dethrone consumerism in your heart. Lesson number three, this is for those of you that don't like the season. And I know there's some of you out there, and that's okay. Lesson three, expect God to show up in unexpected ways. You know, after this huge buildup in verses one through five, you get to this, you know, a a baby. That was completely unexpected. Um, Who knew that God was going to save the world through a baby? God showed up the first time in unexpected ways. Why wouldn't he show up even in your own Christmas celebration, Advent celebration this year in unexpected ways? Uh, For some of you, this is a hard season. It reminds you of what you've lost. For some, this is the first year without someone that's very close to you, or it's not the first year. It may be the second or fifth or tenth or twentieth, but it reminds you nonetheless that that not all is well, not all is complete. Uh, Depression statistics are higher during this season. There's there's a lot of things that we could look to. You know, why why does this season remind us of loss so much? Well, there's a lot psychologically to that, but I I will just say this. Could it be that just as Jesus showed up in a messy environment, in an unexpected way, in Bethlehem, in a dirty manger, that for some of you in grief right now, in loss, 
you might sense a closeness to your Savior that would be sweet? Would you make yourself open to that this season instead of just trying to get through it so that you can relax again in January? Would you open yourself up, those of you that this is heavy for you, and I'm praying for you as a pastor, would you open yourself up for God to meet you in an unexpected way? Why wouldn't he? That's actually how he entered the earth the first time. Expect God to show up in unexpected ways. And then finally, the last lesson. This is for everybody. Remember that the good news of this child is good news for you. In other words, it is grand, it is cosmic, it is prophetic, it's all these things. It's also personal. It's for you. It's good news. Isaiah 9 is good news. You need to uh, let Isaiah, through, through the Spirit, preach this text to you because you're not all that in a different place than the Hebrew people were when Isaiah was writing. Things are still hard. Things are still dark. You will see a great light. It is coming, you see. It is personal for you in your circumstance. Now, one of the ways that I, I want to encourage you, I'm going to land my sermon right here. I want to encourage you to apply this is to take another look with me at these four names of Jesus. I'm going to walk back through them. Then after I walk back through them, I'm going to ask you, if you have a, a Bible with you and a pen with you, to circle one of these names that you need to be true about Jesus right now in December of 2017. I want you to literally grab on to one of these four names of Jesus that you need to remember is true about him because you've got to have that right now in this circumstance. This is a way of helping this text be personal for you. So let's walk back through very briefly these names. Some of you need Jesus to be the wonderful counselor in your life right now because you don't know what to do. You're in a season of life, a phase of life where there's some complex problem or, or some path. You don't know path A, path B. Where do I go? What do I do? You need the wise, supernatural wisdom. You need the strategist. You, you need that part of Jesus that would be able to speak to your circumstance. You need to claim this name, wonderful counselor. And the question is, will you allow Jesus to be your wonderful counselor? Will you allow him to tell you what you should do? Some of you need to circle that name. Some of you need to circle the next name, Mighty God, because you need to be reminded that he is deity. That means he's in control. Some of you need Jesus to be your mighty God in this season because things feel like they're just spinning out of control. Like You realize you don't have control. It doesn't feel like there's control anywhere. And as you would open up your trust to the mighty God who is indeed in control, you'll be able to rest. That's your only hope of rest is to say, I can't control this. It's out of my control. But Jesus is mighty God. He's deity. That means he's got to be sovereign. He's got to be in control. And I'm praying for your faith this season to actually believe that. Some of you need to circle that name. Some of you need to circle the name Eternal Father. Because some of you are in a season right now where you don't feel like God has much affection for you. You don't feel the parental care of your eternal father. You need to grab onto this name. Maybe father is not a good connotation for you. You know, it, it, for, for many, many of you in the room, it's not. You need to remember that he's not an earthly father. He is an eternal father. 
His care and compassion makes the greatest earthly father in the world look like a chump, you see. He's the eternal father with that kind of parental care and love for you. He has only good intentions in his sovereign control. Some of you need that name. And then finally, some of you need the name Prince of Peace this season. You need to remember that he is the administrator of wholeness. Anybody feel fractured right now in your life? Like your relationships are fractured. Maybe your finances are fractured. Maybe your health is fractured. Uh, maybe your family's fractured. Things aren't the way they wish they were there. Maybe a dream has been shattered and fractured. You need an administrator of wholeness of shalom that you can trust to put the pieces back together in his timing. That's the name of Jesus you need to grab onto in Advent of 2017. So I would invite you to circle one of those names. Write the date next to it. Advent 2017. This is the name that, that the Spirit is encouraging and inviting you just to kind of grab on. And then I'm going to encourage the next three or four weeks between now and Christmas, meditate on that attribute of Christ. Meditate on that name. Think about it. Think about why you need it. Pray prayers that are centered in this truth about your Savior. And I want to pray for you as we close and then we'll worship one more time before we leave. Our Father, I thank you that you are all of these things and your Son, Jesus Christ, is the embodiment of of the one who is wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. I pray, Father, that as we journey through this season, you would not allow the craziness and the busyness and the push and the, the stress and all these good things that fill this season, you, you would not allow those things to diminish our spiritual vitality. But that this season of Advent would be for what you've given it to the church for, and that would be a season for our nourishment. As we look back and remember your first coming, which strengthens our faith and strengthens our hope, that we look forward to your second coming, where all will be well. We can count on it, because your word has declared. We put our faith in Jesus, the Savior, and his name we pray, amen.